Welcome back to the Charlotte Angel Connection, the Charlotte area podcast linking entrepreneurs, investors, and the broader Charlotte community. As you know, our goal here is to interview the individuals who are building, shaping, and influencing entrepreneurship in the Charlotte region so you can stay invested in Charlotte's growth. Today, super, super excited to bring you Lauren Martirano. Um, Lauren is the founder of Zinnia. Um, as you'll learn, they are working to bring people together in just a few clicks um, using their um, their platform, their end-to-end platform. So Lauren is a second-time founder. Um, she had her first company she launched a couple of years ago um, and in that process discovered uh, a passion for this new company and also discovered a passion um, or not necessarily a passion that she had a network of folks around her that had a passion to support and help her grow um, as an entrepreneur and as a founder. So in steps Zinnia and she's approached it in a great way. You'll hear in her background, um, you'll hear it as she talks about the company and how they are building through some some product developments, how they're thinking about growing, um, and then how she's just kind of tackled the network here in Charlotte as well. So super strong founder, really good company, um, uh, strong network, and somebody that I think we're really going to have to keep an eye on here in Charlotte for years to come as she makes waves. So certainly hope you enjoy today's podcast with Lauren. Lauren, welcome to the podcast. We're excited to have you. Thanks so much. I'm excited to be here. So we've spent some time getting to know each other a little bit over the last couple of weeks, but, um, and I think the, the audience, um, has probably met you as well. I think you've um, been out and about in Charlotte a fair amount in the last couple of years as well. But, um, for those that don't, do you mind giving us a, a little 30, 60 second commercial on uh, commercial on Lauren? Yes. Well, my name is Lauren Martirano. I'm the founder and CEO of Zinnia. Uh, Zinnia is a platform to help bring your teams together in person for corporate offsites, retreats, sales events, anything like that, and just a handful of clicks. So don't spend hundreds of hours planning. We can just take care of it all for you. Um, but a little bit more about me. I, uh, I am a recovering corporate employee. So I spent eight years between Microsoft and Salesforce and then took a jump into this crazy startup world. So, and you've been in Charlotte for a number of years as well, right, Lauren? For four years. Yeah. And I love it. So, and where are you originally from? I'm originally from small town, Nebraska. So good old Elkhorn, Nebraska. I hear you. Um, and from Elkhorn, Nebraska, um, talk a little bit about your journey across the state, so to speak. Where'd you go after that? Oh yeah. I've been kind of all over the place. I, um, was a Nebraska Cornhusker. So I went to undergrad there. Um, but I joined Microsoft right out of undergrad and I moved to Dallas, Texas, spent a couple of years there. Ended up moving with Microsoft to New Orleans, spent four years there, and then um, four years ago, moved to Charlotte. Uh, New Orleans, I don't know if that came out in our um, our pre-podcast interview or not, Lauren. We'll have to dig more into that at a separate um, networking <laughs> yeah. slash social event or something like that. The um, best in the world. What's that? Is it the best food in the world? Yeah, really. So, um, well, let's... Um, let's dive a little bit into that corporate background, right? Cause it's a, um, it's a key kind of key component, right? That's, it's a good breeding ground. It's a good training ground and everything like that. So what was Microsoft like 
right? That's where you started off. What you, what kind of, what formed or shaped Lauren in your time with Microsoft? Yeah, I actually thought I would spend my entire career at Microsoft. I absolutely loved it. It was incredible. The best leaders, the best teams uh, learned so much. Um, but I was in a sales capacity. So I was an enterprise account executive at Microsoft um, in tons of different teams in state and local government and enterprise and nonprofit. Um, but Microsoft just has a really special way of doing things and taking care of their customers and going to market. So I felt like all of that really um, shaped the way that I'm forming Zinnia. But I think the biggest thing for me for Microsoft was when I look back at my time, the things that I loved the most were these almost pseudo startups within the company of um, building something from the ground up. And that's really where I got the passion for, you know, joining a startup. Yeah. So it's funny. I've got a couple of friends that are at Microsoft and they all say the same thing, right? Like the corporate culture that they create, there's like a wonderful culture and it's it's always a tough place to walk away from. But ultimately, new opportunities kind of pop up, and um, it's important to you know at least review those and look at them. So Salesforce came knocking, and um, Lauren says, "Sure, let's give this thing a twirl. Why, 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 why pick up Microsoft and go on to Salesforce?" <laughs> you know, it's so funny. I um, like I said, I didn't think I would ever leave, and part of it was because I had incredible mentors and advocates that were executives at Microsoft, and they really were helping kind of give me a seat at the table, give me a voice, um, and exposure to you know, tons of great learnings. But one of my mentors actually called me and was like, hey, Lauren, I've got something to tell you. I'm leaving for Salesforce. And I was like, no, you can't leave me. And he was like, no, 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 you're coming with me. I'm, I'm taking you with me. And um, I, you know, I was like, no, I don't, I don't think I'm going to do that. But ultimately, they kind of gave me an offer I couldn't refuse. And um, I'm really glad I made the jump. It's completely different corporate culture, completely different way of doing business um, in, in the best ways for both of them. But getting to learn a whole new you know, method of madness was great. You went from like a super calm, stoic um, CEO to a really loud <laughs> CEO, right? <laughs> That's an understatement. I could not be more polar opposites. <laughs> uh, who do you model yourself after now that you've got your own startup? Or are you, are you going for a blended version of the two? I would say, yeah, I'm, I'm more of a blended version of the two. I like to have a lot of fun. I can be very loud, but um, not to the point of Mark Benioff loud. So yeah, that's awesome. Um, what brought you to Charlotte? Yeah, I, um, you know, Salesforce was a great job opportunity for me to come here and actually had some friends that lived here as well. And I thought my time in New Orleans had run its course. So figured why not? Weather's great. People are great. And haven't looked back ever since. Food is improving. It's improving. Food is improving. It is getting much better. When I first yeah. moved here, I was like, Ooh, this is going to be a problem, but yeah. there's been some awesome things opening. Yeah, no, there really has been the last couple of years. It's been great to see. Um, so what, um, so two great corporate cultures, as you said, Microsoft has a little bit of some, um, startup, um, vibes to it as well, but ultimately what led Lauren to say, Hey, I'm going to leave the safe, the quote unquote safety and security, right? I'm not sure that's necessarily true, especially in light of all these layoffs over the course of the last couple of years. Um, what led you to leave the safety and security of corporate culture and kind of and start your own thing? Yeah, I um, I know it is wild. Everyone thought I was crazy for leaving, and now this uh, this world has gotten even crazier. But um, yeah, I mean, I took a a ninety percent pay cut to leave, but I um, 
I had some really silly goals. Now that I look back, I think they were silly, but I had some goals for myself um, at Salesforce that I wanted to be, you know, the number one salesperson in the org. I wanted to close a nine figure deal. I wanted to, you know, do X, Y, Z things. Um, and then when I fulfilled all of those goals, I was like, okay, shoot now what <laughs> I, you know, I'm happy to be, you know, the, the number one person in the org or whatever, but I'm not fulfilled. I'm not satisfied. It's felt very superficial. And I was like, okay, so what do I actually want to do with my career? And I've been lucky again, that I've had mentors and, and advocates throughout my career that I, I called one of them and said like, Hey, I'm, I'm really trying to figure out what I want to do now. I feel like I, you know, can sit on customer calls and play candy crush on my phone because I can do this in my sleep. I'm no longer learning. I'm no longer growing. I'm just trying to figure out what I want to do next. So we spent some time looking back the last, you know, eight years of my career in corporate. And it was like, what were the things I really loved? And it was the things like I launched the CIO gives back um, campaign at Microsoft, which became a, an organization where our customer CIOs would get together and volunteer. And it was something that was, you know, it, I was incredibly passionate about, but it became something really awesome. I launched a nonprofit on the side as a passion project, ended up joining um, Salesforce and then launched the women's network and sale at Salesforce in the Southeast. And so there was all these like little, you know, pseudo startups, if you will, and realized like, that's really what I'm passionate about is can we actually, you know, what, what kind of role is there at Salesforce where I can build from the ground up? I ended up doing kind of a stretch project within the product team and launching a, a restaurant solution toolkit. Um, and I was like, wow, building product is really fun. I was doing pitches internally to, you know, hey, how do I get resources to build this? How do I get funding? How do I co-sell? And it really was like the exact experience of launching a startup. And I realized like, this is what I need to do, but I need to do it for myself. So you're starting to talk to mentors and those folks that you you look up to you've learned from that you respect and whatnot and um you just walk out the door with an idea or how did you how did you start how did you start that process of hey look um not only am i ready to go do something else not ready not only am i ready to build something outside of an existing organization but this is what it's going to be yeah. So I, um, I spent some time really doing research on different areas that I was passionate about, what I could possibly build, um, and started connecting myself with people that had quit corporate and gone to the, the startup world. And, um, an engineer of mine from Salesforce actually reached out and we were chatting about some of the ideas I had. And he said, Hey, like, I'm actually trying to build something, um, on the side as well. And I think that you and I could kind of collaborate on it. And so um, he was building something in kind of the Web3 tangential space with, um, you know, Discord monetization um, and, you know, all of that crazy stuff. And we just kind of started doing it on nights and weekends for fun and just seeing what happened. And it, it started growing and started growing really quickly. And I realized like this, this is an opportunity for me to just jump in and like, let's, let's see where this goes. And it might go nowhere, but it's a, it's a great opportunity with traction already for us to actually build something awesome. So we ended up um, doing that full time for almost a year and growing that company. Um, so, the <laughs> um, your small town Nebraska, you've um, you've hit some pretty cool metrics with with Salesforce. I can only imagine giving your folks a call and saying, "Hey, mm -hmm. look, I'm going to leave corporate and I'm going to go do this instead." Um, how did not only to your folks, right, but just like to your peers and whatnot. I mean, some of them 
were probably like, yes, this is absolutely 100% you. And for others, just like, you're crazy. What are you doing? So how did you internalize those conversations that you were having with folks? Oh my goodness. Yes. You are completely spot on. I think my parents, um, my, my parents were like, are you sure this is the right move? Are you going to be able to pay your mortgage? Are you going to be okay? You know, they, um, they're not in the tech world. So this, this sounded really scary to them. Um, but I remember talking to my dad about it and he's like, I'm really glad that you're doing this because this has always been you. It's like wanting to actually, you know, build something and pave the path. Like this has always been you. And this is the perfect time in your life to do it. You don't, you know, you don't have other responsibilities or children or anything like that, that may, um, be relying on you for a more stable lifestyle. But when I actually called my team at Salesforce, I had the best team of um, like truly friends. I still talk to them all the time. And that was the hardest part of me leaving is I loved my boss. BJ was the best boss ever. And I remember calling him and I cried when I told him I was quitting. I was like, BJ, I'm sorry. I have to go do this for myself. And he was quiet and he was like, you know, I'm really, I'm really excited for you. Like, I'm really excited. This is going to be such a good move. And if you ever want to come back, we'll find a place for you. So everyone was incredibly supportive. They all thought I was a little crazy, but um, they're still supportive. They're they're still my cheerleaders. So I was really lucky in that. That's awesome. So you've got your cheerleaders um, who are still your still your cheerleaders. You spun out. You started your first entity. Um, at what point in time did you realize it was time to to move on and and start the second one? Yeah, I. I think that a lot through the process is I made every mistake that startup founders, first time startup founders make in my first company. You know, there's um, how do you go to market? How do you raise capital? How do you talk to investors? What the heck is a pitch deck? All of that kind of stuff. I had so many good learnings, but another good learning was uh, making sure that you're partnering with the right people, finding the right co-founders. Ultimately, my co-founders wanted my co-founder wanted more of a lifestyle business, which is awesome. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, But I quit corporate not to coast, but to build a billion-dollar company. And so we had a conversation about it, and I was very lucky that one of my mentors um, with Atlanta Ventures, I kind of shared where we were, and you know, I was like, "What do I do here? I'm at this impasse where I know what I'm passionate about, I know what I want to build, and I don't think I can do that in this environment." And they said that's totally fine. Why don't we fund whatever you want to build and um, come join Atlanta Ventures as an entrepreneur in residence and let's do something awesome together. So they made the transition incredibly easy. That's awesome. So talk a little bit about um, the Atlanta Ventures and residence. What is it? Um, uh, what'd you learn from it? Um, takeaways, et cetera. Yeah. Atlanta Ventures is awesome. So they have a, an entrepreneur in residence program. It's They call it their studio. Um, so a couple of companies that have gone through it are Calendly, Sales Loft, Terminus, um, In Town Golf Club, which is coming to Charlotte. So um, opens in May, friendly plug. Um, but those that went through it, they have a kind of a team surrounding you from the beginning. So let's actually verify that there's um, a huge problem here. Is there authentic demand? Let's put up a, a landing page, a website, do financial modeling, all of the back end stuff, all of, you know, all of the um, kind of noise around founding a company, Atlanta Ventures has taken care of it, which has been amazing. But the more important part of it is the partners at Atlanta Ventures and David Cummings are obviously have been around the block and have done this over and over and over so they can help me avoid the pitfalls that I faced before. Yeah. 
Um, and you've learned some of the pitfalls yourself, right? There's a little <laughs> bit of um, there's a little bit of benefit of of running into a couple of the pitfalls along the way. Oh yeah, yeah, just a few of them. <laughs> just a few of them. So, <laughs> well, I mean, we'll grab lunch. I'll tell you about some more of them. Um, anyways, um, so how long were you kind of in the um, in the program, and at, how long were you in it to kind of start to realize, okay, this is what I'm doing next, right? So um, was it a day? Did you already kind of have it scribbled in the back of your mind that, hey, if I get another pop at it, this is something I want to try? Um, how did that idea percolate, so to speak? Yeah, so typically the kind of process of going through the ideation um, journey with Atlanta Ventures is four to six months, but um, you know, you've gotten to know me a little bit. I don't do anything slow. So <laughs> I came in with um, three different ideas that I really wanted to validate, um, do more research into and figure out. One of them was in the Web3 space. Still, I still think it's really interesting. Um, something around making a CRM using your digital wallet as a unique identifier for this future future world. Um, thought that that could be really interesting, maybe using NFTs for luxury good authentication and how do you do that um, to be able to kind of track transactions on the blockchain. So there was a couple of different ideas I was exploring. Granted, now the state of the world with everything going on with crypto and the lack of trust and um, you know all of that stuff, I'm glad that that's not the direction I ended up taking. But the other area that I've you know consistently been passionate about is community and building community. And that's honestly where my passion for Web3 comes in is that's the entire ethos is how do you build um, a business around community? But that being said, um, I ended up just speaking to, I interviewed over 170 people that were leaders at tech companies, at healthcare companies, education, and was like, what's keeping you up at night within your company? How, you know, what's, what's difficult for you? Um, and the thing I kept hearing over and over is retaining talent in this new future of work space. So people are working from home and people are um, hybrid or remote, but how do you actually build uh, employee engagement and actually retain them? And that's really where we landed on Zinnia is we need to start figuring out how to build community within remote teams by bringing them together for these concentrated moments of in-person connection. That's, um, and you're, um, and you have some background there as well, right? Yeah, I, um, you know, as we kind of explored these conversations and interviews, I kept hearing, I need to bring my team together in person, but it's so hard to plan. And I know that firsthand because I did that for my sales teams at Microsoft and Salesforce, somehow got stuck being the one to plan our QBRs or our sales kickoffs, or even our customer dinners, um, you know, ancillary events to conferences, all of those things. I know how time consuming it is, especially when it's not your full-time job to do it. And so figured, why can't we build technology around here to automate it? Don't people just go to Vegas all the time? Isn't that just a simple answer? <laughs> oh, Vegas. I've been to one too many conferences there. It seems like every time I talk to somebody, they're either going to or just coming back from Vegas. Um, so um, so you've gone through that interview process, right? You're talking to 170 different people and the idea is starting to really solidify. Um, what's, um, what's your first step besides forming an LLC? Besides forming an LLC, yeah. So that whole process of going through the research of the different ideas and validation um, was about six to eight weeks, um, just you know, constantly talking to people. From there, I was like, I feel very convicted that there's something here. We don't know exactly what it is, but there's something here. 
So my first hypothesis was people need help planning offsites. And my second hypothesis was people are willing to pay for it. So we put up a really crappy landing page that was <laughs> basically like, hey, we'll help you make your offsites in a couple of clicks. And um, didn't really even have a company yet. I don't even know if we had filed our LLC yet, but put it up there and said, you know, contact us for pricing, made um, a little bit of a announcement just to see what, you know, what we would get. And we found resounding evidence that not only do people really need help with this, but they're willing to pay a lot of money to help with it. So we were like, okay, I think we're onto something. Let's actually, let's actually give this a real shot and see where it goes. A lot of money is always a good answer. <laughs> please quantify a lot of money. <laughs> what? Sorry, what did you say? I said, please quantify a lot of money, right? <laughs> Pricing strategy, please quantify. Please quantify. Yes. No. So we we actually started out by pricing 10% of overall budget um, for an offsite for planning fees. The reason we kind of backed into that is typical um, traditional event planners take 30 to 40% of your overall budget, which is insane. It's insanely high. And most teams can't, you know, validate that they can't justify that. And, um, so we thought, okay, 10% sounds like a good number. It's low. We could probably still get some good margins out of it. Um, but ultimately companies will add people last minute or add some crazy big party or, you know, cut things and having that fluctuation of price just didn't really make sense. So what we found was on average, customers spend $2,000 to $2,500 per attendee um, of their overall budget, for their overall budget. And so we just backed into a price of $200 per attendee for our planning services and our software. This is for a one-off event, not an annual event strategy. That's um, it's a smart way to back into it. Um, it makes a lot of sense and it makes it easier for you to handle all of that stuff that goes into it, right? Yeah, you know, and the best part of that too is um, we also know that because we have our travel agency status and we have economies of scale and partnerships, we typically end up getting a 10 to 20% discount on all of our vendors for our customers. So for them, they're happy because it's either break even or we even sometimes pass along further savings for them. Um, so our fee becomes a wash. Yeah, no, that makes a, um, makes a ton of sense. So, uh, you, I mean, you toss that out there. So we got to kind of dig into a little bit. You mentioned travel agency status. Mm -hmm. So, so when you start a startup, you don't realize all the little windy roads that you have to go down. <laughs> right. So that probably wasn't the, the first thing that you thought of as I need to, to grab that status. So, um, how do you approach those? Like something pops up and say, like, Ooh, that's, that's going to be helpful. Like, how do you approach that yourself, Lauren, from a founder perspective, um, cause you can't chase after every squirrel. Um, how do you quantify it? Yes. Yes. So there are constantly things popping up when people ask me, okay, what does your day-to-day -day job look like? Like, what is your role? I'm like, yeah, I'm founder and CEO. I'm also head of sales. I'm also the, you know, janitor at our office. I'm apparently a travel agent now, you know, we, you do wear so many different hats. Um, but for us, I'm, I'm, um, a big proponent of, putting importance on different tasks throughout the week. So for, as these things pop up, I was like, Hey, we really need our travel agency status. Um, and that kept coming up over and over because we also are able to unlock commissions from hotels. So there's another revenue stream for us. Um, but I also knew that to be a full-blown travel agent, you have to go through lots of classes and taking exams. And I frankly just didn't have the bandwidth. 
And so instead of, um, you know, spending all of that time doing that, I ran, we'll, we'll refer to it as a spike as if we were in developers, right? Let's do some research on the best way to get this done. Spent a couple hours and found that you can find, you can actually get a travel agency status through registration that just doesn't allow you to book airlines, but you can do everything else. And so that's kind of the way that we started with it, prioritizing what was really important, which was vendors and hotels. Gotcha. Does it have to be you or can you pay somebody else in the organization to do it? To get to our, through the coursework, through the rest of it. Yeah. Oh, yes. No, we will. That is on our list to be able to go through the full course and be able to get our IATA status, to be able to do airlines. Uh, in the meantime, we do have airline uh, travel agency partners that, that kind of augment for now. That's awesome. That's perfect. Um. So every startup, I shouldn't say every startup, but a lot of startups need capital to get going. Um, you've, you know, launched, you launched last year, right? 2020, is 2021 or 2022? We, 2022 in August. Yeah. 2022 of August. Um, capital is a, a lifeblood of any economy or of any company in any economy. Um, fundraising for you has been, um, a good process, right? You've been able to kind of move through it. What, how did you approach it? from the very beginning and how's it gone? Yeah, we were very lucky with Atlanta Ventures um, doing our kind of pre-seed round automatically for us, just saying like, hey, we'll fund you to to kind of build this <clears throat> from the ground up. But now we're, we just kicked off our seed fundraising. Um, but I was, I was lucky through my last company that I was able to make some awesome connections, get some great relationships with partners at VCs, and, um, you know, not really have to go through a formal cycle as, as much as I had to in the past. So, um, you know, at the seed stage, it's really, do we believe in the founder? Do we think that they are not a crazy person? And two, do we believe that the vision is big enough to be something that is investable and could be a billion dollar company? Yeah. And I, I feel bullish on the billion dollar company. And I've been lucky that some investors feel bullish that I'm not crazy. So <laughs> Some investors, maybe, maybe um, not all yet. Yeah. You're check, checking those boxes as you go down. Um, what's the, um, so you mentioned it again a second ago and we kind of bounced through it. Uh, if you would have jumped straight out of Salesforce into this, this Zinnia company, right. Rather than going through the previous experience, um, would, would it have been as smooth or what did you learn? I mean, other than obviously making sure, you know, your, your partnerships and whatnot are, are kind of tied up, right? Like how much is just the experience of kind of grinding through everything and then immediately flipping that switch and go through, how much has that been helpful to you? Incredibly, incredibly helpful. I think there's a, a huge reason why most successful entrepreneurs have stories of multiple failed startups before. Um, you know, you don't know exactly what it's like until you do it firsthand. And I read every startup book in the business before even starting my last company. And there's just, you, you can't learn it until you go through it. And so I think even I remember we kicked off our raise with my last company and I was like, I've never heard of a data room. What's a pitch deck supposed to look like? What are these investor calls, you know, 
what, what do they ask me? What do they do? Um, you know, I remember the first time I got off a VC call where they're like, this is really interesting. Like we would love to stay in touch. And I was like, oh, they're interested. And it's like, no, no. Now I know that when the investor says they'd like to stay in touch, they're like, nah, <laughs> that's like the, the, no, thank you. But, um, the Southern polite hello or a goodbye. Yeah. yeah. yeah it's like the bless your heart. Right. Yeah. So, um, going through all of that with my last company helped me have a lot of clarity now. And I think it's only been two years since I left corporate, but I sit here and I, I talk to other, you know, newer first time founders and they ask me all these questions. I'm like, wow, wait, I do know this. I learned all of this through that first process. I'm like a professional. <laughs> um, so the other aspect, you know, it's not just, not just the, um, the lessons you learned through your first startup. It's not the lessons you learned through Microsoft or Salesforce, right? We all have role models and mentors. Um, so when we think back or when you think back on that, like who have been some, some good mentors, um, or role models through you to you over the years. So I have a very specific story of my first week at Microsoft that will always stand out to me. Again, growing up in Nebraska and actually anywhere, there's not a lot of women in on stage at big conferences or on the front cover of Forbes, albeit that's getting better. You know, there's it's uh, 53 of the Fortune 500 CEOs are female. So the first time it's broken 10% in 68 years. Um, but there's all this stuff where there's like, I never really saw females in leadership. And I joined Microsoft. My entire team was were men. They were awesome, great allies, but they were still all men. And uh, I went to MGX, which was the sales kickoff conference, where there's like 15,000 people in Vegas. And um, I remember sitting in this huge conference center and Amy Hood, the CFO of Microsoft, walked out and she commanded the entire room on stage. And I was like, wow, like women can do this. I can do this. I can do anything I want. Um, and she really just, that, that was just such a pivotal moment for me realizing that women are capable and able to do the same things. Yeah, no, that's a, it's an awesome story. I love hearing that, right? Like it, um, light bulb switches and Hey, wait a second. Um, I don't have to sit in the back seat anymore. I'm not only am I capable of moving to the front seat, I'm moving to the damn steering wheel folks that like move out of the way. Right. Mm -hmm. Oh so, yeah. That's awesome. So, um, kind of take that and where where's Zinnia going to go right where are you going to take it um and then we'll flip the switch and say how are you going to how are you going to serve as that role model for um other other young Laurens out there yeah well Zinnia is getting ready to take over the world so um, I like that you just gotta, gotta start at square one but um you know what has been really interesting through this entire process and um, launching and launching our MVP and growing our team has been um, the market will, will really tell you what they want and what they need. And, you know, there's whole, all these macroeconomic factors coming in. But the one thing that never changes is people always need to spend money on sales. So whether that's a private customer dinner to try to get, you know, a six figure contract signed or a, an event that's ancillary to the AWS conference, right? So you're have a bunch of customers or prospects there, um, or a sales kickoff where you're driving pipeline, a partnership kickoff or a QBR where you're reviewing your deals and bringing everyone together to collaborate. These are the things that are never going to go away. Sales is always has to be there, especially when the economy is not good. 
And so we've been hearing resounding over and over. We really need help not only with our sales offsites and events, but also with our customer facing events. So we're really starting with focusing on empowering salespeople, sales leaders, sales organizations to close deals faster through that in-person connection. So that's kind of the, the you know, stake in the ground of, of how we're starting to, to take over the world. That's awesome. As you've, as you've kind of moved through launch, MVP, um, gaining customer traction, um, what have been in, in company number two, right? Like what have been some things in company number two that you've learned that hadn't popped up yet in company number one? What, what's the, um, what are some of the bigger takeaways on, on Zinnia as you've approached it, we'll say from a more professional manner, from a more knowledgeable perspective, right? Yeah. Go to market strategy is we've definitely been more focused on a go-to-market strategy with Zinnia and um, knowing instead of say, like throwing it at the wall and see what sticks, really being focused on defining the ideal customer profile and how do we build something to serve that? Because ultimately, yes, you can build something that everybody can use, but something that everybody can use is not going to be perfect for anybody. So how do you build something that is perfect for a specific customer segment? And then how do you go to market with that? And what we found with this is um, our enterprise, you know, enterprise level customers are more of who is, is asking for this, begging for this, needing this. And there are so many legal and logistical hoops to becoming a supplier for the Microsofts and Amazons of the world. So going through all of that process has been so interesting. Um, you know, like I said, I didn't think I was going to become a travel agent. I didn't know that I was going to have to be, you know, doing research on indemnification insurance. There's just different things that just come up along the process that, that you know, I've been learning um, every day of how to better serve that segment. So as you serve those segments and you, you launch different things, we talked about it earlier and I should have asked you then. Um, uh, you launched your MVP kind of early on um, and you said you threw together just a landing website and just let it go from there. And you're experimenting with these other avenues we talked about it before. Um, when you do that, sometimes you're just, you know, begging for people to kind of criticize that aspect of the website, right? So how's that? How's that been? Well, how have I, you taken? How have you taken people calling your baby ugly? <laughs> I am a um, big proponent of the. If you wait till you're proud of your MVP, you waited too long. Um, and I think I'm, I'm proud that we launched clunky and I'm proud that we launched ugly because we know, um, we know that, you know, we wanted to get to market quickly, but I also think that there's an element to say like, Hey, we're, we're, um, adding you into the MVP. This is the portal that where you're going to be interacting with us. We know that it's clunky. We know that it's ugly, but we're asking you to give feedback. And I think that people are way more willing to give feedback on something that they're going into it knowing that it's an MVP and they're way more willing to help being kind of a steering guiding light of what they need, what works, what doesn't versus if it was super polished and they're like, Hey, it looks really beautiful, but like, I'm not using 60% of these features. So, um, I actually am like really proud that we launched in, in such a funky, ugly way. <laughs> How did you right? That's a huge hurdle for some folks to get over, right? That knowing that I'm going to go out and present this to folks and it's not trash, right? It's, it's back of the envelope right now, right? Like help me get back in the envelope. Like, um, 
um, was it difficult for you? Like I, I almost feel like with founders, it's just not difficult. That's their mentality, right? Like that's just the way it needs to be. Um, or am I wrong? And it actually is really difficult and you just swallow the pill and do it anyways. Yeah, I, that's such a good question. I think because I had my starter company and got to learn a lot of that, then I got to have some of that recovery from my corporate experience where, you know, not everything's going to be perfect. Things are going to be broken all the time. And I realized that that is just the way that it is in the startup world that now I kind of embrace the ugly. I will say though, I remember sending my landing page to my parents and being like, Hey, look, we launched our website. And my dad's like, there's a typo on page two. I'm like, okay, well, you know, this is, we, maybe we launched a little too early, but, um, but yeah, I mean, now I feel like we're at a point where there are things that I'm really proud of. I'm specifically proud of the experience and the service that our customers get. And I don't really care if the other stuff is going to take some time to get, to get pretty and less clunky. Yeah, no, it makes a ton of sense. Um, on the um on the pretty and less clunky aspect of it right like how do you approach tech like tech is so fast moving like how do you um how do you as a founder navigate your way through all of those tech conversations not having that personal tech background yourself yeah i um i always make a joke that my toxic trait is that i think i can do anything if i watch enough youtube videos so I've watched so many YouTube videos and listened to so many podcasts about, you know, agile development and um, wireframing. So I actually built all of our wireframes myself and I have zero technical background, Um, but I kind of taught myself a little bit how to do that through YouTube videos. Um, And I know enough tech to be dangerous, but also hired the right technical person to join our team to be able to kind of translate my broken tech speak into reality. but you know, tech does move super quickly. And the way that we approach it is um, we have hypotheses that we're trying to prove out with each version of what we're, we're launching. So, hey, we think that this is what customers want. We, for the MVP, we think that they want to interact with software versus having to call somebody on the phone to find their, their answers. Um, so let's build something and verify that they actually want to interact with it. And we typically build with no code or something like that. And once we say like, oh, they will do this. Now let's actually build it for what it's worth. That's awesome. You've done that a couple of different times. You've gone scientific on me with your hypothesis, (laughs) right? um, Where'd you pick up that lingo? It's so perfect, right? Um, Was that in a book you read or is that through just, um, is that industry speak? Or I don't think I've, I mean, I've interviewed 140 some founders and I don't think I've ever heard somebody refer to it as a hypothesis. Uh, I don't, I I don't think it's an industry speak. I think it's just me being a nerd speak, but. um, (laughs) You you saw it in a YouTube video. I probably saw it in a YouTube video or a podcast at some point, but. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's it's all about, you know, ideate, hypothesize, verify before actually coming in and saying, like, I'm going to build a solution for something that nobody actually needs. Yeah. Um, no, it's smart. I mean, again, it's, um, it's a scientific approach and scientists have figured out a way to make that work for them over the years, right? So why not uh, personalize it to what you're doing and building? What's the next 12 months look like for Lauren and Zinnia, right? Where are you, what do you, what's on the horizon? What's the, um, what's the opportunity set? And then what are some challenges to get to that opportunity set um, other than capital? 
Yeah. I mean, obviously capital is the first thing. Hopefully we're, we're planning on closing out this round of funding here in the next couple of weeks, which is great. We've been, you know, really excited about that, but that's which really what's fun. A pause on that really quick, just to think about um, closing out. This is March 21st. And for anything that doesn't know the world nearly fell apart 12 days ago. <laughs> so um, anyways, <laughs> to be, to even be able to think that um, and much less execute on it is, is fantastic work and just shows you've got a lot of folks that believe in you and the company and whatnot. So that's fantastic. Thank you. Yes. You know, when, when SVB kind of had the fallout, I uh, was a little concerned, but we had our troops rally around us and really take care of us. So um, much appreciated, but you know, um, I think a lot of people congratulate founders on raising rounds. They're like, oh, wow, congrats on the round. But really, it's like, okay, it's what do you do with it, right? And that's where really what the next 12 to 18 months is going to look like for us is we're going to continue to grow our team and build out our team. Um, specifically, we're launching a microservice focused on field sales. So the, that like private client, client dinners, um, you know, ancillary events to conferences, those one-off customer facing events to be able to do build, um, our, we're, we're building that tool for you to be able to plan that in just a couple of clicks and it should have that launch here in the next couple of months. But the thing that we're really excited is we already have our beta with that in, um, trials with two large enterprise tech companies. Um, so hoping that goes well and we can kind of land and expand from there. So, um, really cool. So you moved here in 2019. We'll pivot. We'll spend the last couple of minutes of the podcast talking a little bit more about Charlotte. Perfect. Um, so you moved here in 2019. You were um, a corporate person at that point in time. You were a startup founder hidden as a corporate employee. <laughs> um, so you've seen the Charlotte startup community kind of, um, I think it's really picked up a lot since 2018, 2019. Um, how how has that been? You've had Atlanta Ventures, but how has the startup scene around Charlotte kind of helped you as well? Um, I'm um, I'm obviously very passionate about women in tech. So uh, one thing that I'm very involved in on the leadership team is for Gwen. So it's the Growing Women's Entrepreneur Network. It was founded by Ashley Gotro from Creative Co Capital and Jenny Ferris, um, who does brands and humans um, marketing firm and both incredible individuals. But the whole purpose is how do we get more women in startup and how do we get women in startup that are investable? So how do we help them find the most investable ideas that are huge markets um, and then connect them with the right people for, for capital? So that community has been incredible for me. Um, I felt like I get to you know, celebrate and commiserate and, and talk through all of those things with other founders. Um, but I also get to give back to other founders in ways that later stage founders did for me when I was first starting out. So that's been a huge proponent of um, my happiness here in the startup community. So it's just your personality, I think, is the answer that I should go with, but I'm going to ask in any ways. Um, how do you stumble into things like that? Man, well, I... I kind of oopsied my way into uh, joining Gwen and, um, you know, kind of helping build it from the beginning. Ashley and I got connected actually with my last company and her, she, she said, Hey, I'm trying to build something awesome. I think that you would be um, a huge value add to come join. And then I joined and I just genuinely love being around people and love the women involved in this group. So 
kind of got hooked and they're stuck with me now. <laughs> um, how big of a challenge is that, right? Um, women in entrepreneurship, women in tech, um, and it's not um, investable, right? It's um, because, um, I mean, that's the challenge with with anything. It's getting folks to recognize this investable, right? It's because the, the talent's there. It's just the recognition has been um, slow to evolve. Maybe the most PC way we can say it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, um, this last year, 2022, only 1.9% of venture capital, institutional capital went to females. And that's actually down half percent from the year before. So we're not going the right direction. Um, but it's such a convoluted issue, right? It's not, it's not black and white. Over 50% of companies founded last year were actually founded by females. So it's not that there's a scarcity aspect of it. Um, but there's there's so many other things that go into it. There's not enough female LPs, not enough female VC partners. Um, but I do think that there's enough micro communities like Gwen here in Charlotte, or I know Atlanta has many women in tech kind of groups that are trying to build the programming to change that game. It's a long road game though, isn't it, Lauren? It's not an overnight game, unfortunately. Unfortunately not, yeah. yeah. Um, so what that means is it takes Lauren building a billion dollar company, selling that off and becoming a VC to invest in um, women led companies um, in 10 years. Is that, is that what I'm hearing today? You're speaking my language. Yes. Absolutely. (laughs) Um, but that's the end goal, right? You said it earlier, you want to build it's, this isn't to build a lifestyle business. This is to build something that's scalable and, um, scale takes you in a couple of different paths and you'll evaluate those paths as they come along. I take it. Right. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So what you're saying is this isn't the last that we're going to hear of Lauren and Cindy over the course of the next couple of years. Oh, no, we're not going anywhere. So we're just getting started. Uh, well, we're excited. I mean, um, you know, mentioned not long ago, have really enjoyed, you know, last couple of conversations we had leading up to this podcast. I think, you know, the company you're building is, um, it's an awesome concept, right? I think bringing people together is something the world clearly missed in 2020 um, as well as 2021 and probably even for really 2022 and um, companies are starting to recognize and explore that. So you're, you're swimming in the right place um, and you've got, you know, the background and the folks that support you to, to really push this along. So I think it's gonna be fun to watch you grow over the course of the next couple of years. Thank you. And thank you for having me. It's been so nice getting to know you and the whole Charlotte startup community. So, well, thanks a lot, Lauren. We look forward to staying in touch, seeing you at future startup events and seeing what you do with Zinnia as well as with Gwen. Um, So keep up the good work and thanks so much for everything you do. Thanks so much. Have a good one. Registration does not imply a certain level of skill or training. 
opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect those of Portis Wealth Advisors. The topics discussed and opinions given are not intended to address the specific needs of any listener. Portis Wealth Advisors does not offer legal or tax advice. Listeners are encouraged to discuss their financial needs with the appropriate professional regarding your individual circumstance. Investments described herein may be speculative and may involve a substantial risk of loss. Interest may be offered only to persons who qualified as accredited investors under applicable state and federal regulation or an eligible employee of the management company. There generally is no public market for the interest. Prospective investors should particularly note that many factors affect performance, including changes in the market conditions and interest rates, and other economic, political, or financial developments. Past performance is not and should not be construed as indicative of future results.